0: I mentioned on Sunday that over the course of the week of mourning for a scholar, a Torah scholar his base medrash, his house of study is meant to be dormant, as it were not actively engaged in study Rashi and white cotton explains that means those that go went in his life to seek understanding of Torah from him. So as, as I spent about 12 years learning by Rabdavid so I did want to ensure that I dedicated a bit more time to saying hespid, eulogizing of him. And he really was an incredible person. You're talking about somebody that spent almost a century of dedication to Talmud Torah. So at 99 years of age, the Sheshiva saw the world go through so many changes but he he really had a very dedicated focus throughout his life to talmantara in in a in a laser like precision with it with his focus he was a, a man of uh, famous scholarship and he, he was quite gifted, there, there's no question about that, you know, besides coming from a family that is famous for being blessed with scholars, people gifted, he was seen as the, the crown of the family, of the Salvatric family, certainly for, for decades, there's no question about that. when he got engaged so he went for about two months to Tzvath to focus on Shulchan Aruch and he learned through all of Shulchan Aruch in those two months nice little project go through Shulchan Aruch uh, of course the Beis Yosef designed Shulchan Aruch itself to be accessible for somebody who goes through it regularly within 30 days which is remarkable in of itself but of course with the Ramah and the Nose Kalim that's becomes a Herculean feat to consider that Rabbi David did this as he's about to embark on marriage he wanted to I have a, a thorough uh, grasp of Shulchan Aruch and the Nosy Kalim, and that took him two months. In general, his learning, and he's, he has so many Sfarim that are printed, so many books, commentaries that he printed, that were printed by students, really. He didn't print, but his students did. Volumes and volumes. But what's, what's fascinating is that he was learning so much tarot, I was kind of surprised myself on many occasions that he, he never seemed to be, not in my presence ever, preparing for the shir. Which is an interesting thing because that's what you'd think he would be doing. But when he'd come to yeshiva, He invariably opened up a different Masechta. So he comes in, the whole place stands up. He goes, takes off a book from the shelf. What is it? Not the book that everybody's studying. A different book. It's learning Chulen. Everybody's learning Zvachim, he's learning Chulen. And that's what happened regularly. After, more more recently, he, he had medical procedure and after the procedure he was speaking with his wife and telling her over a, a very interesting shtikotara about kain for about a half hour it had nothing to do with the, the shiurim that he was giving and he gave so many shiurim it, it's, it's really amazing the, the heavy load that he took upon himself in a regular week. What I know about, I don't know about everything else, but what I do know about is that he gave three sets of shiurim. So he gave to us, which was the younger group, and he gave to the older group. And at night, he gave to Asifa Zakenim, the much older group. He has students that are in their mid-seventies. He had different sets of students. And it's not, he, he did do some overlap, where he was giving over to different ages of students that were learning in the yeshiva, so they're working on the same subject matter. But uh, the, the, the evening shiur and the classes that he gave were on a totally different subject. And the way he gave it over, I, I, I never heard. The other year I, I was only in the the younger shear, which is better for me I mean, that 's uh the shear that he gave over in the the easiest manner to understand he I think he exerted himself the most in, ter- in terms of trying to convey things simply taking less for granted, so it was certainly appropriate for me, but he he did take each shear and and cater to that group even if it was the same subject matter to try and deliver it in a manner that they could receive and from people that I spoke to that have gone to both levels they've described it as being quite different radically different if you will in terms of the delivery even if you're dealing with the same person who's learned through the same material but a radically different Delivery, because he wanted to teach the Torah, and he appreciated that not everybody's the same. That different people need to have a different delivery. And he he really appreciated that. So the the aspect of his scholarship is, is something that can't can't be stressed enough. I don't think because the the Torah is. So incredibly massive that the extent of Torah and, and the dedication with which he applied himself to understand the word of God, the will of God. He, he really was entirely dedicated. And, and he was a very unpretentious person, probably the most unpretentious person that I know. I remember one time he described himself as the gabbai of Yeshiva which is laughable. He was the Rosh Yeshiva. The is the beetle, that was, uh, the caretaker of Yeshiva. He was the Rosh Yeshiva, was the dean, the head of the Yeshiva. But he described himself, I, I, it was hard not to laugh, but he described himself as the gabai. He was an Anav, a, a really genuinely humble person. His... Ben Adam the his his sensitivity to other people was also remarkable. Whether it be for their person, for their their assets, their wealth, he he didn't want to make anybody ever be uncomfortable. And, once he had to go to the dentist, and he asked the person driving him, can you get me a cigar? I was a little surprised. Never heard that the Reshiva smoked cigars. He said, I I can get cigarettes easily, but a cigar is gonna be a little harder. You you sure you need a cigar? (laughs) I'll get it for you if you want. He said, yes, yes, a cigarette's not enough. You need a cigar. (laughs) He said, if you don't mind me asking, Why do you need a cigar? (laughs) So he said, I don't have good breath and I'm going to the dentist. I don't want to cause him any discomfort. So if I smoke a cigar, that's going to cover it up and it's a a smell that is strong. You know, it maybe is a a bit of a a surprise from our culture. You you know, try and put yourself back a hundred years in in brisk to consider cigar smoke as pleasant, but that was his motivation. He was genuinely concerned about his dentist, that the dentist shouldn't feel uncomfortable, so he wants to smoke a cigar. So, a very sensitive person about people's money once after he had a medical procedure. So he felt that he needed to eat something. There was nothing available, and he had certain stringencies about the laws of produce in the land of Israel, Shumas So he asked somebody to, to purchase for him a candy bar, a, a, a chocolate bar, that was made in Chutzlar. It's made in the diaspora, so the fellow did so, and he ate the chocolate bar, and he was recovering from his procedure, and a number of days later, he inquired, he, he was trying to find this, to get this person to come back, and he's, he's, he wanted to give him the money. He said, can you help me? You know, I'll, I'll tell me exactly how much the, the, candy, the, the chocolate bar cost, I want to pay you back. The guy said, oh, I'm delighted to make it a gift for the reshiva. I wasn't expecting it to be paid back. He said, no, no, I I want to pay you back. But the reshiva was very meticulous with if he borrowed something to pay back, if it was uh, something small that that somebody did for him, he he showed the, the greatest amount of gratitude Somebody somebody found once under one of his furniture pieces in the house a half a shekel. And he was so grateful. He said, Wow, I've I've been looking for that for half a year. Thank you so much. <laughs> he was very gechbed. He really wanted to use everything he had in the service of God. And if he had remembered that he lost something, he didn't know where it was, so he, he wanted to use this opportunity to make the person feel good. they they helped him out and he felt good it was of course you know a half a shekel is not a great amount of wealth but he expressed such gratitude anybody did anything for him and all the more so when people helped him not financially but with his more directly with his divine service There's a point, unfortunately, in his later years where he wasn't able to have the sukkah that he had normally had. And he was genuinely concerned about how he's going to fulfill the the mitzvah, the command, to dwell in a booth for the festival of sukkahs. And my chavrusa, Rabbi Leibaltuski Shlita, worked diligently to make sure it happened. He built the sukkah for him. The Rosh Hashiva was overjoyed and could not stop thanking Him. Probably a dozen times. He he said, I didn't know if I was going to be able to fulfill the the Mitzvah this year. You made it possible. It it was the greatest sense of gratitude you could imagine. And that's that's how the Rosh Hashiva was. When he davened when he was in prayer, so the salmidim in the front that were near him had expressed that I had heard i, I didn't see it myself that particularly in the first blessing of the estri of the silent Amida uh, at that point there was a tremendous sense of of dvekus, of, of cleaving to the divine and, and people noticed the, the tears streaming down his face regularly particularly during the first brach of Shemone Esrem uh, Talmud Moshe Machim Klar mentioned that when he would duchen on Shabbos by the Rosh his socks would be wet. So he's a coin. He goes up to where the Rosh Hashiva was standing, just past it. But the Rosh Hashiva would cry. This is on Shabbos. So presumably it was was not cries of, of anguish, which is prohibited on Shabbos. But nonetheless, he had these tears, this sense of closeness to God that brought him to tears to the extent that this fellow who came regularly to to give the priestly blessings so he takes off his shoes and he puts his socks on the, on the floor and he feels the moisture coming through regularly just an amazing amazing person he wasn't putting on a show for anybody. Sometimes, when he would give shear, I keep in mind he gave probably around 10 shear a week that I'm aware of. By Thursday, he was typically pretty tired, especially as he got older. And on, on some occasions during the Thursday shear, he would briefly fall asleep. In the middle of a tosis or something, some, some complicated discussion. Everybody was silent. Nobody said a word. And maybe a minute or two would pass. And she would get another, enough energy, enough of a recharge from that little break. And he would wake up and spontaneously pick back up right exactly where he left off happened time and time again it wasn't it wasn't all the time that he fell asleep but when it did happen on those occasions invariably he was not disoriented when he got back to to where he was it was immediate he woke up he continued right exactly where he left off he was a sandic, a seat of honor to hold my boys for their bris milah for the circumcision and I remember one of the family members uh, came over to him afterwards and gave him a blessing for Arich HaSiyamim, they should have long life, and she gave him a lot of blessings and he was so appreciative of this... He had such a love for life and a love for people He wanted to express his appreciation to them and he was so genuinely thrilled to get this blessing. And he, he conveyed that so warmly. By the Sandikos or after the Sandikos, afterwards. So, our was also there, our rebbe, and David asked him, what are you doing here? So, Rav told me afterwards, he said he had to hold himself back, but he wanted to say, what are you doing here? <laughs> but the, the concern for every Talmud Rabdavid had, he, he really would do what he could to help Talmidim in any way that, that he felt he could. And he, he felt an acharais for Talmidim, a, a responsibility to help them if he was able to, financially if that was necessary, in other areas. One time he had spoken sharply about some of the tenants that he had in yeshiva. He also, he owned apartment build uh, apartments, that he rented out to students in the yeshiva. And apparently, at one point, there was a concern that they had left the place. Some of this, the tenants, the students, had left and taken some things that were really the rosh and and he, he spoke sharply about it. And I don't know who it was that he was speaking against, but apparently one bacher, came to the rishiva with a complaint. He said, I didn't steal anything, but people are calling me a ghanav. So, he said, uh, so what do you want? So, he said, I never said you're a ghanav, but people are calling you a ganiv. What do you want? People are saying you're a thief. What do you want me to do? He said, I, I want the rishiva to write me a letter. R- write me a letter. So, the other Talmudim there we're, we're not happy about this. They said, no, come on. We'll be Mepharasim. Th- there are three of us. We'll tell people that he said that you're not a kind of... What, what are you bother with Rosh Hashiva for that you should... He says, no, I want a letter. So Rosh fine. Rosh spent time, put out a full letter. He didn't write letters for people very often. It was not a common thing. But he wrote a nice letter about this bachar. It's a good bacher, a chulu, etc. He said... He said, he said he'd, to, to try and help with the, the damage control that, I don't know if it's true or not, but he presented this concern to the reshiva and the reshiva wanted to help him. When the reshiva had a medical procedure about a year and a half ago, he was quite weak and he was no longer able to stand during the repetition of the Amida. Of the, the repetition of the main prayer and that is something he had always done and he also wasn't able to stand to get an aliyah which is something that he would always done he had the Torah reading in his home and he felt distraught about this and he did Hattaras He he did an annulment of vows he felt that this is something that he had done. He had regularly done these practices. Now, if he wasn't able to, he, he felt that he should do hatarsan an annulment of vows. And nonetheless, he still exerted himself to stand as much as he could. Say so he was partially leaning on his shtender, his lectern, he wasn't standing fully, but he he pushed himself it's amazing he really pushed himself so hard he was so exhausted at the end of the day it's It's amazing that he he was able to to go for nearly a century he he really worked so hard he was a very from person very uh, meticulous in the observance of, of even what you might say would be minor directives of how a person should live and Rabbi Brandeis from Manchester said over that once he was in the house by the Rosh and the Rosh may have been slightly disoriented I don't know what happened but he tied his right shoe before the left shoe and according to jewish law the preference is to tie the left shoe before the right shoe so first put on the right shoe then put on the left shoe tie the left shoe and then tie the right shoe and the reshiva apparently at that, at that time did not he, he said the Roshiva fainted so the Roshiva fainted and we're not talking about somebody who finds out that he's done some terrible sin he realized that he May is what I would consider, a, a very minor deviation from the ideal. Right? The, the Rosh Hashiva fainted. <laughs> it's just an amazing thing to think about this. As a Talmud, certainly all of the Talmudim were in awe of him. There's no question about that. He he was like a malach Hashem like an angel of God. And you read the story of, for example, Manoah and his wife, and you see that the terror that they're experiencing, particularly Manoah. For me, it's it's hard to appreciate such a sense. Uh, I can't say that I've ever encountered an angel or felt a terror from such an encounter. But encountering the Rosh Hashiva was like, Malach Hashem Tzvolk, like an angel of God. I could relate to that story. I, I could see a sense of what that might be like. But on the other side is a very warm and friendly person. His... I have a friend that, Yasum, is an orphan. And he told me that his sisters would love to go and visit Rabdavid Salvejik. I said, really? Now, this is interesting. Most people are, are shaking in their boots if they want to go and visit the Rosh mm-hmm. He said, no. He took care of, of his sisters. Rosh Hashiva took care of his sisters entertain them and he made them feel comfortable and welcome and, and they loved to go visit him They, they didn't have the, their parents And the took care of them and it really It's it's another dimension of the that It's it's not something that the Talmidim experienced at least from my perception and, and the regular basis, but Rishiva was caring for every person, every Jew, and especially concerned to help those that were disenfranchised, like orphans. And this year, I recall one time that somebody asked a question on what he had said based on the printed uh, collected writings that, that he had described over the same piece of talmud probably uh, a dozen years prior or, or perhaps even more and he he's he's presented as a as a question against what the rashi was saying in this year this time the rashi was saying one thing which seemed to be against what he was saying prior Shiva was laughing when when this was presented as a a question against him. He said to the person inquiring, he said to the student, you you fell for that? You know, I've grown since I said that shir, (laughs) that that, that shir a long time ago. But he was, he certainly was not averse to looking things in in a different way. And He was very willing to, to back down if he, if he thought that it was an error. That, that, that certainly had no problem with that at all. If, if the student was an error, which happened plenty, so he also made it very clear that he thought that the student was making an error. One time... One of the Talmud, one of the students, said something a little bit sharply. He said, It's mafurish, not like the Reshiva. It's explicit, not like what the Reshiva is saying. He laid out his case. The said, You do a vodah you, you, do, you do idolatry? The guy, the guy was surprised. It had nothing to do with this discussion. He's not trying to do idolatry. He said, It's explicit in the Torah. It says, Am, am I the Lord your God? Should you not have other gods? So it's explicit in the Torah. If you read it the wrong way, it's explicit that of course you should do idolatry. She said, so, so you say it's explicit, so you do, you do idolatry. So he's retorting in a, in a sharp way, which Thershiva certainly knew how to do. And. The guy said it was explicit, but perhaps a misread. would let him know. Uh, certainly, anybody that, that spoke in the shir, whether it was a, if it was accepted, of course, you know, it was uh, like he had a halo, you know, around him. But uh, but even if he was ripped to shreds, like uh, you know, a gladiator a combatant, he was still also a hero. Uh, people appreciated that he. Was willing to risk the uh, the consequences of, of what might happen in Sheer, which happened plenty when he when Rishi would disagree. Friday night after the, the meal, Rishi would say to Helen. It's an interesting practice that I'm not aware of being widespread, but that that is what the Roshiva did. I remember in, in this year so rarely. He he might need to ask for a glass of water or tea. In his house he had tea, in the sheer I recall it, water. There were times when he gave the sheer in his house, when he couldn't walk to, to the sheer room for whatever reason. But when he made a bracha, when he made the blessing over the, the water or the tea, It was really a a, a full attention to what he was doing. He would put on his hat, hold the water or the tea, make the blessing, slowly enunciating every word with with full, what appeared to us, concentration of fulfilling this directive to, to bless God for this gift. Mersheshiva was, of course, known for being an opponent of the secular Zionist movement and to a degree as well of the, the tactics engaged by the religious Zionist movement. And that's not surprising, that really is following his father and his grandfather at the, the Briskrov gave a marshal he said a story it's a little boy running through the woods with his father and the father says you know it's we're, it's a dangerous we're in the woods over here Beryl come back you're going too far ahead so the son is happy frolicking over there in the woods and he's not paying attention to his father and he's it says uh, "Beryl, come back Beryl says no no i'm, I'm playing with a bear <laughs> the barrel that's dangerous you can't play with a bear come back now <laughs> so Beryl says ta i can't come back the bear is playing with me this is his parable that the Briskerov said of the risks of playing with the secular zionist Movement, that, that was his perspective. And Rib David was certainly opposed to, to many aspects of what took place in the Zionist uh, governance. And, and he did not take any money from the government, he did not want to be in any way beholden to the directives of the government. But nonetheless, there's a. Unfortunately, a number of times over the course of the time that I was there, various wars that broke out. And at one of these times, a friend of mine in Shiva, in Yamnuhupet, would. Go regularly to type the notes by the shiva's house. And the Rishiva, concerned about what was going on at the time, this war that was going on, asked him every day for a report: "What is going on?" So he would make sure to find out what's going on, give the report to Rishiva. And one time he he came in, and he said, "There's." Uh, battle that took place in Gaza and ten of the Israeli soldiers were killed. And Reshiva was so pained. He cried out, Oi He's very distraught over this and Benjamin was a little bit surprised that Rashi was taking it so hard, and he said, "You know, they're they're Zionists. Now this is uh, this isn't just to 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 clarify that he should know what happened." And then Rashi was said, "They they're hidden so, These Jewish people that were that were killed. This is a tragedy." He was. He said, You you can't say such a thing. He he really was, was very hurt to to try and make that kind of differentiation, to try and lessen the sense of, of loss, or she would have none of it. He, he cared for every single person. Every Jew. Zionist, not Zionist. Wherever they were holding, is a is extremely, extremely kind-hearted person. If there's a way that he could help a person. He he would do every whatever he could. Yeah. That's a loss for Kaliystr. It's a loss for us a living guide of what a human being can achieve it's not something that you can pick up from a textbook it's not something you can pick up indirectly he's not with us now we don't have we don't have his guidance it's a tremendous loss it's a tremendous loss for college struggles May we merit the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy Bila death will be swallowed up for eternity. Adonai Elohim Demo may and God will wipe away the tear from every face.